Before I start the show, I have to set the stage. There is perhaps no gaming company more widely known than Nintendo. Though their first internationally known product was the 1981 arcade game Donkey Kong, the legacy of Nintendo as a dominant force in video games began with the release of the home console called the Famicom, short for the family computer. Initially released in Japan in 1983, it would come to be known internationally as the Nintendo Entertainment System after its release in North America in 1985. The Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES for short, was the shot in the arm the video game industry needed following the video game crash of 1983 where the video game market fell into a two-year-long recession brought on by an oversaturation of video games and consoles, many of which were poor quality. Video game sales plummeted from over $3 billion in 1982 to just $100 million in 1985. Nintendo's success could be attributed to a combination of strong branding and an initial commitment to quality control by developing some of their games internally to be exclusively released for their own consoles and their own consoles alone. Nintendo felt like an unbeatable company, and they created a wide variety of iconic characters along with their console that could only be experienced in one place. The NES and its 16-bit follow-up, the Super Nintendo, dominated the home video game market, and they were so ubiquitous at the time that parents of a certain age still referred to all video game consoles colloquially as a Nintendo. But times change, and new challengers emerge. Multinational tech conglomerate Sony entered the console wars with their own device that they developed after a partnership with Nintendo to develop a CD-ROM peripheral fell apart. A mixture of hubris on Nintendo's part, as well as Sony's sheer power as a tech corporation, ended up producing the literal game-changer, the Sony PlayStation. The PlayStation not only dominated the console market that generation, it thoroughly crushed the incumbent Nintendo, outselling the Nintendo 64 at a rate of nearly 3 to 1, and selling over 100 million units the most that any console has ever sold up to that point, but that number would soon be surpassed. The PlayStation 2 is the best-selling console of all time. In fact, the console sold so many units that if you combine the total number of Microsoft's Xboxes and Nintendo GameCubes that sold that generation, and then multiply that number by three, it still wouldn't reach the 155 million PlayStation 2s sold worldwide. Sony's thorough beating of Nintendo over these two generations was strategic and brought about a radical shift in the gaming industry. PlayStation's technological edge over Nintendo, as well as their competitive offerings of exclusive games, eventually led Nintendo to seek new gimmicks and ways of playing video games in order to remain competitive in an industry they once dominated. Over the past 30 years, the PlayStation has left a legacy of over 1,000 games released exclusively for its consoles. However, the market remains competitive. Sony has no reason to fall into the complacency that once caused Nintendo to falter. The Nintendo Wii outsold the PlayStation 3. The second Sony handheld, the PlayStation Vita, underperformed, and the Nintendo Switch is on pace to outsell the PlayStation 4 despite the latter's four-year head start. Furthermore, the Game Pass subscription service by Microsoft has been hailed as a game-changer for the industry. That, combined with Microsoft's acquisition of several major game studios, including Bethesda and Activision Blizzard, has raised concerns, mainly for its long-term implications for the video game industry, but also for Sony's position in it. Consumers and industry experts have been eagerly awaiting Sony's response to the Game Pass for years, and one has finally arrived, the updated, tiered PlayStation Plus service, one that hopes to leverage nearly 30 years' worth of exclusive games you can't play anywhere else. Today, I intend to take a deep dive at the new PlayStation Plus service and its offerings to see if it's one representative of Sony's history as an industry titan. Does it do justice to the exclusive games that secured its legacy? 
How does it compare to the Nintendo Switch Online and Game Pass? Was this rebrand an improvement? Will this gamble pay off? What's the most you've ever lost in a coin toss? I'm Kiefer, and this is No Country for Old Games. Hello, and welcome to Select and Start, the podcast about meaningful and memorable video games. I'm the host and editor for the show, Kiefer, and today we'll be breaking from format a little bit. For those of you new to the show, I typically have a guest on to talk about a video game that they consider to be the most important to them. And I usually conclude our discussion with a segment called No Country for Old Games, where I rate that game's availability on a scale of A to ARG. ARG obviously being an exclamation of frustration over how hard it is to find this game, and it is in no way me covertly advocating for piracy. That's illegal. I have this discussion because video game preservation means a great deal to me. These games clearly mean a lot to the people who play them, but as they get older, it becomes harder and harder to easily play and find these games. Old technology becomes obsolete and wears out. For many older games, your only option is to pirate it or pay for it in a secondary market, where prices are often unreasonable. In many cases, you have to buy a console secondhand too. And whether you pirate the game or buy the game secondhand, the developers don't profit from it either way, so what's the difference? Which kind of brings us to the new PlayStation Plus rebrand. Many people are looking at it as Sony's response to Microsoft's Xbox and PC Game Pass. The way Game Pass works is that you have access to a library of games via a subscription model instead of buying games individually. Game Pass is often touted as the greatest deal in gaming because you gain access to hundreds of games for a variety of genres for as little as $10 a month. And the first three months only cost a dollar. That's an incredible deal. So it gives you access to games exclusive to Xbox and PC, indie games you would otherwise overlook, and new releases as well. I've never been an Xbox guy, but even I have Game Pass on PC because it's a legitimately good deal for me. It's a solid model. The $1 on-ramp means there's little risk and it hooks you with the variety and quality of games available to you. Three for one? Yep. How can that be profitable for Frito-Lay? These corporations? I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> it's not perfect though. It obviously has its limitations. It'll never house Sony or Nintendo exclusives for one. If you're not an Xbox owner, you're still limited by your PC's hardware too, so even if your PC is only a few years old, you're not going to be able to play those new AAA games as well as you would on a console. And many note that there's a dark precedent being set by this service, which I'll get to later. Mainly though, I'm here to talk about the new PlayStation Plus rebrand. As good as Game Pass is as a deal, it is limited by the relatively small library of exclusive games compared to Nintendo and Sony, as they've been in the console market longer. The recent round of acquisitions by Microsoft has created a shift in the industry though, and these acquisitions will strengthen their library of exclusives and raise the value of the company in the future. They're becoming more competitive. And Microsoft doesn't seem interested in competing against Nintendo directly. Quite the opposite, really. If you follow the news in the gaming world, you may know CEO of the Microsoft's gaming division, Phil Spencer, and he claims that he has an amicable relationship with Nintendo and owns a Switch himself. So despite Microsoft's acquisition of Rare in the early 2000s, a company that up to that point developed games almost exclusively for Nintendo, Microsoft allowed Rare to develop games for Nintendo in the years since, but only on the Game Boy Advance and Nintendo DS, because Xbox never had a competing handheld. That wasn't in the way of what they were doing as a business. Recently, Microsoft allowed Nintendo to put Banjo and Kazooie into Smash Ultimate, which comes across as a sign of respect. They didn't have to do that, but it's something that the fans kind of wanted, and they understood the value in having a legacy character be in a fighting game like that. The amicable relationship makes sense. Nintendo may sell more console units than Xbox, but the niche that Nintendo occupies isn't quite the same as the one that PC and Xbox fulfills. 
Microsoft is more interested in developing a strong traditional console with current technology. Nintendo wants to push the boundaries on what a console is. They're not concerned about being the strongest graphically. They're interested in trying out new gimmicks and challenging our ideas of how we play video games. The novelty of the Wii and the Nintendo Switch haven't been successfully replicated in the market, so there's literally nobody else doing what they're doing. So one company isn't really necessarily in the way of the other. Sony's more of a traditional competitor that way, so it's more like the Xbox versus the PlayStation, and people just have a general respect for Nintendo and try not to get in its way. Go Apple! Go Orange! Go Banana! Before I get started and talk about the PlayStation Plus rebrand in more detail, please understand that I am speaking strictly from my perspective. I can't speak for you. The value of a dollar is different for each individual, and everybody likes different kinds of games. When I praise something, I mean it genuinely, and when I criticize something, it's from a place of love where I want something to be better. So when I talk about Sony and Nintendo and Microsoft today, please understand that while I have my own preferences in games, I don't intend this to fan the flames of the console wars. I am not an X-Bot or a Nintendrone or a Sony Pony or a Nintendork or an X-Bore or a Sony Crony or a Nintendo Wiener or a Micropenis or an X-Boner or a Sony of Sam or some other pun I can't come up with right now. So if I criticize something you like, understand I'm not attacking you. I'm just speaking for myself and from my perspective. My loyalty is to the players, not the corporations. A company cannot be your friend. It is not a person but you can easily share your love of gaming with the people around you. I don't feel compelled to defend a company no matter how much I enjoy their products. And frankly, their decisions should be scrutinized. We should make sense of the things that have worked. We should criticize the things that don't work. And we should advocate for better, more consumer-friendly business practices all around. I pay these people. They don't pay me. So it's not unreasonable for me to want these companies to create the best products and services possible especially considering how massive they are and how many resources are available to them. So with all that being said, I'm going to take a quick ad break and then I'm going to give you my honest in-depth thoughts on the new PlayStation Plus service and how it compares to these existing services that Microsoft and Nintendo have. This episode is not brought to you by BetterHelp. In fact, I wouldn't dream of taking their money because their lackluster service takes advantage of people who need good, decent therapists. Therapy is like toilet paper. The cheapest thing is probably going to cost you more in the long run. Ignore the BetterHelp ads. Don't settle for a service with predatory pricing that gives your data to third parties. The world is cruel and services like this are capitalizing on a problem, not making it better. Do not support them. That's free advice for you. I understand being desperate for help and if you need it, you should seek it from legitimate services that can provide help to you. Please do your independent research before buying in anything you hear on a podcast. Don't rely on a scam. For this episode, I'll be using my breaks between segments to promote independent creators such as myself that I like and trust. I'd rather use my show to promote friends instead of products and services that don't work or actively cause harm to people. With all that being said, please enjoy this first ad. You are listening to Select and Start, the podcast about meaningful and memorable video games. I'm Manu, co-host of Podcast Sans Frontiers and Kiefer's very first guest for Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater. If Metal Gear and video game deep dives is your SOP, then check out Podcast Sans Frontiers, where my co-host Brian and I interrogate the characters and extract the themes, via Fulton, of course. It's a two-man army facing down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear series. 
Each game gets a multi-episode breakdown, working through the memorable maps and boss battles as we salute Mr. Hideo Kojima's anti-imperialist masterpiece, built upon a send-up of iconic action cinema. And we're about to launch our most virtuous mission yet, an exhaustive breakdown of MGSV, the final entry in the saga. All our coverage and analysis has been building to this. The best is yet to come. Find Podcasts on Frontiers wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, back to the show. We're back. So now I'm going to discuss the new PlayStation Plus service in a bit more detail, talk about my experience with it, and give my thoughts on the overall service. So I subscribe to the PlayStation Plus Premium Package, which is $120 a year, $60 more than what I was paying for PlayStation Plus prior to the rebrand. Listeners who are maybe less familiar with the PlayStation Plus service, let me break it down for you. There are three tiers to this new service. There is the lowest tier, which is Essentials, which is PlayStation Plus as it existed before the rebrand. So that's $60 a year. You get two to three free monthly games, uh, a catalog of games on the PlayStation 5 called the PlayStation Plus Collection with a variety of games like older PlayStation 4 games that aren't making as much money anymore, but may hold a lot of value if you've never played these games in the past. There's also multiplayer, and then there's cloud storage and discounts and deals on the PlayStation Store. Once again, that's $9.99 monthly and then $60 annually. This is what people were already paying before the rebrand, so any other tier is going to be more. So that brings us to Extra, which is the second tier. So for $15 a month or $100 annually, you can get everything in Essentials plus the PlayStation Plus catalog. Now, already there's probably something a bit confusing for people because I mentioned the PlayStation Plus collection and the Essentials tier, and then there's the PlayStation Plus catalog. Think of the PlayStation Plus catalog as the collection, but bigger. As the PlayStation blog advertises, it's a catalog of up to 400 PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5 games, including blockbuster hits from PlayStation Studios and a catalog of third-party games from various partners. So you can pick from a pool of over 400 downloadable games, put them on the console, and play them right there. So that's 400 games available to you if you are subscribed to this tier. And then there's the premium tier, which is $18 a month or $120 annually. This gives you everything in the extra tier and the essentials tier, plus the classics collection. As is advertised on the PlayStation blog, the classics collection includes classic games from the PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2, and PlayStation Portable eras. And you can either download or stream these games. Logging on to the PS5 also shows a remastered section where games that were remastered to play on the PlayStation 4 are also included to download. What about PlayStation 3 games? Well, these are only available via cloud streaming. You can't download PlayStation 3 games. You can only stream them. The unique architecture of the PlayStation 3 made developing games for the console difficult, and consequently has made porting and emulating them difficult. So the vast majority of games from that generation can only be played via cloud streaming. It's a bit of an obstacle, and it is kind of disappointing if you wanted to get this for the classics. I'll come back to the cloud streaming thing in a bit because I have a lot of thoughts on it. Time-limited game trials are also included in this tier, so this allows you to play a few hours of a game to try it out. Think of it as a big demo where you also earn trophies. So with game trials, you can play five hours of Horizon Forbidden West or Cyberpunk 2077, or you can try three hours of Crusader Kings 3 or two hours of Tiny Tina's Wonderland or Uncharted Legacy of Thieves, or one hour of Ollie Ollie World. As of the time of this recording, 11 games total are available in the game trial section. So that's sort of the three tiers. Essentials is 
what it was before the rebrand. Extras is the Essentials tier, but you have about 400 more games that you can download for free. And then the Premium tier is about the Classics, but it's mainly streaming PlayStation 3 games and a few PlayStation 2, PlayStation 1, PlayStation Portable games. Let's talk about some of the good stuff about this service first. The Extra tier has so much value to it, honestly. Those 400 plus video games that are available to you, honestly, some of it is just padding out the number, but there's a lot of great games that are worth playing on here. There's the Demon's Souls remake that was released on the PlayStation 5. There's Bloodborne. There's Death Stranding Director's Cut. There's Horizon Zero Dawn. Red Dead Redemption 2 is here, though it is going to be taken off of the service somewhere between September and October. So this reveals an immediate weakness to me about the service where games can be taken off. That being said, the games that are available to you to download today show that there's a lot of value here, and this is something that I am totally comfortable recommending. If you want to get the PlayStation's extra tier and you don't have a ton of PlayStation 5 or even a ton of PlayStation 4 games or there are games that you have missed out on, this may be well worth getting for you. I take a look at the list of games just to make sure that you haven't played a lot of the ones that would be considered worthwhile already. If you haven't, if they're just like major oversights in your backlog like there are for me, it's worth the extra $40 to me. That's what I can say. But let's talk about premium for a minute. The premium tier is promising. This tier is kind of primarily dedicated to people who may be a fan of classic games, games that were released prior to the PlayStation 4 generation. Clearly, Sony sees that there is a value in this market and intend to make extra money from people who wouldn't be on the extra tier. But what about the actual selection of classic games that Sony has available to us at launch? Well, it's not great, honestly. The problem is there aren't a lot of classic games readily available to start, at least not in the downloadable section. Streaming has hundreds of games to choose from in the PlayStation 3 category, but in terms of actual downloadable games, there's a lot to be desired here in the library. I would describe the PlayStation Premium selection as more promising than it is outright good. There's not a lot available here at launch that is worthwhile to me. And I think that's the segue I need to talk about what needs improvement on the service. A lot of my disappointment with it is rooted in the PlayStation Premium tier and specifically the Classics offerings because they are severely lacking. As of the time of this recording, there's only 39 games from the PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2, and PlayStation Portable era that can be downloaded and played. And most of the games aren't bad necessarily, it's just that these were clearly games that you could already download on the PlayStation Store in the section that was called PlayStation 2 Classics, and then they threw a few PlayStation 1 games and some PSP games to sort of make it seem bigger. As of the time of this recording, there's only 39 games from the PS1, PS2, and PSP era that can be downloaded and played. That's over a decade of gaming history and three consoles and 39 games total. It's kind of absurd to think about, especially since, again, the value for buying the PlayStation Premium is the classics. And those 39 games aren't all terrible or anything like that. There's Good games like Ape Escape, Ape Escape 2, Dark Cloud, Dark Cloud 2, Jack and Daxter and its sequels, as well as Jack X Combat Racing. There's a few Star Wars games in there, Siphon Filter, Tekken 2, Wild Arms, and Wild Arms 3. It's not necessarily that the games are terrible, it's just that the selection is lacking, and it's not really representative of its history. It feels like a lot of games immediately, right off the bat, are missing, and it feels like the game selection is arbitrary, which is because it kind of is. It just feels like a bunch of stuff that they already had on the store put into the service to make it seem like it's bigger. So that's it, 39 downloadable games, but not really. There's a few more games that you can download in the premium tier in a section called Remasters. 
It gives you access to downloadable games from previous generations that aren't lumped in a specific generation because it was re-released on the PlayStation 4. So this includes the Bioshock trilogy, which was mainly released on the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360, and then it was remastered, released on the PlayStation 4. You can download these games. The Darksiders games. God of War 3 was a PlayStation 3 release, but it was re-released on the PlayStation 4, so you can download it. The Last of Us Remastered, the Uncharted Trilogy, Gravity Rush, which was originally a Vita release but then re-released on the PlayStation 4, that's on here. This adds over 50 more downloadable games in addition to the initial 39. Based on my thorough review of the game offerings, the remasters list isn't fully complete because there are some remasters that you can get on the extra tier. If you're sort of zoning out a little bit because it seems a little confusing, that's another issue, the organization. So, for example, there are recent re-releases of Final Fantasy 7, 8, 9, 10, 10, 2, and 12. And even though these were exclusives on the PlayStation consoles initially, they aren't included in the classic section. And in fact, you don't even need the premium tier to download these games because they're included in the 400 games that you can download an extra. Like I said, we'll come back to the organization issue. Right now, let's keep in mind that the remasters category only includes games remastered on the PlayStation 4, so you won't see those PlayStation 3 era HD remasters of Devil May Cry or the first two God of War games on here. Those are going to be in the PlayStation 3 section, which is its own mess. So let's talk about the PlayStation 3 games for a little bit. This is where that claim that there's over 300 more games available to you on the premium tier come from, but the truth is you can't download any of them. You can only stream them, and streaming isn't the best way to experience games because... When you stream a movie, you're not using that much in the way of interactivity. As long as you have a stable, great internet connection, things are probably going to be fine when you're watching a TV show or a movie. There's a lot more variables that play with a video game that make streaming problematic. So if you have a great internet connection, it's still not great for gaming. The technology isn't there yet, and that's probably why the PS Now wasn't a thing that a lot of people were buying into at the rate that people were buying into the PlayStation Plus. And a lot of these PlayStation 3 games are just games that were available to stream on the PS Now. So really, it's just a way to get more money out of people who didn't buy in the PlayStation Now by including it in this premium tier. So it's claiming like, oh, you can play all these PlayStation 3 games, but you can. And for some, it might play pretty well, but open world games like Red Dead Redemption don't really load or make for a good experience via streaming because they're massive worlds that need to load. There's too much fucking shit on me. I just have a lot of issues with streaming, and I was hesitant to buy into it, which is why I never had a PS Now. But now experiencing it firsthand, now that I have the premium subscription, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan. There's a lot of issues with it. As someone with a great internet connection, a lot of the games still crash, or I have input lag between the controller and what's happening on the screen, and there's just not a consistent frame rate with any of it. There's no consistency to it. I always feel like I'm on edge playing it. Buddy. I can't do this. We did way too much. You can do this. I'm telling you I can't. I'm so hot. Look, you're fine, okay? Go over, grab that guy's tray. There's too much fucking shit on me. I can't. Listen to me. And that's not a good feeling to have playing a video game. You're supposed to be immersed in the experience. So I don't think streaming's there yet. I think streaming is bad for video games. And I think we need to refine the technology more. Sony shouldn't be comfortable resting its laurels on something that's so dodgy and inconsistent. And even in the best of circumstances, not an ideal way to play video games. Bad. Bad Sony. I don't even want to be around anymore. 
So let's talk a little bit more about the organization because it's kind of a clusterfuck, especially if you are subscribed to the higher tiers, because the more that there is, the harder it is to find things. And that's not something that you want to have as a problem when you're offering so many games to people because you're giving people choice paralysis. And then on top of that, you're kind of making it difficult for people to even find the games. So I talked about this a little bit here. If a game got a remaster in this generation or the last generation, it's not going to be lumped in with the classics the same way. Some remasters are included in the extra tier and some are exclusive to the premium tier. That can be a bit confusing. So let's talk about those Final Fantasy games again, right? So Final Fantasy 7, 8, 9, 10, 10, 2, and 12, those were all games that were released on the PlayStation 1 and 2, but they're not included in the classic section because those remasters are included in the extra tier. But there are also remasters that are included in the remaster section. So couldn't we also put those remasters in there? It, it's, it's confusing. The layout is confusing. It's okay to double dip in a couple of categories. Like if you have games in the adventure genre, that's also a first person shooter, you would also put it in the first person genre. Why wouldn't you do the same thing for your classics category to make the catalog seem bigger? I don't know. Shadow of the Colossus had a Blue Point remake a few years ago and that version will be in the PlayStation Plus catalog, but not in the classics. But Eco, which was originally released on the PlayStation 2, was remastered on the PlayStation 3. And you can play it if you have a premium subscription but you're not going to be able to play it on the PlayStation 2 section. You're going to have to stream it on the PlayStation 3. It's messed up. It's in the PlayStation 3 pile. There was a PlayStation 2 version, but you can't download that version. You have to play the HD PlayStation 3 version, which is dodgy. If this sounds confusing, that's because it is confusing. But this is where stuff gets real dodgy, so bear with me here. Before the rebrand, you could buy a limited selection of classics on the PlayStation 4 like Dark Cloud 2 and a Jack and Daxter game, so those were easily folded into the classics tier. Based on the games I played, which are mainly the Jack and Daxter games, they appear to be the emulated versions of PlayStation 2 games, upscaled to HD with trophy support. When I saw that Jack and Daxter was HD, I thought, oh, they took the HD version of Jack and Daxter from the PlayStation 3 and found a way to put it on the PlayStation Store, but that doesn't appear to be the case because... The emulation on Jack and Daxter is different from the HD version that was on the PlayStation 3 re-release. What this emulating and upscaling thing suggests to me is that they are trying to slowly work through exclusives that were released on the PlayStation 2 and make them downloadable so people won't have to stream certain games if they don't have to. I suspect this is why we have Sucker Punch games like Ghost of Tsushima and the Infamous games on this collection, but not the Sly Cooper games. The Sly Cooper games were on the PlayStation 2 but there was a PlayStation 3 re-release of those games. And I'm assuming that they don't want to put the PlayStation 3 versions there because one, it'd be confusing. Why are the PlayStation 2 games with the PlayStation 3 games? But two, they don't want people to stream games if they don't have to, which feels like a concession of streaming doesn't work very well. <laughs> Why would we put a streaming version of a game that we could have an emulated downloadable version of later? That being said, there are some PS2 games that were re-released on the PlayStation 3 that you can stream now, like God of War 1 and 2 and the first three Devil May Cry games. These were games that were released on the PlayStation 2, but again, they had a PS3 re-release, so if you want to stream them, you can't. If you want to download them, fuck you. They're lumped with the streaming-only stuff. And then to make this all the more confusing, there are games that you can either stream or buy to download, but you can't download them for free if you have even the premium tier. 
So you can stream Resident Evil 4, 5, 6, Revelations, Code Veronica, and so on and so forth. If you have a PlayStation Plus membership, you can stream them for free, but if you want to download them, you have to pay for it. These feel like games that are included, but also not included because you can stream them, but that requires you to play an inferior version of the game. You can download them, but you have to pay for them. That's a half measure. I'm not going to count those as games that are included as a service because it's not the optimal way to play a game to me. Resident Evil 4 is like the most re-released game ever, but why can I only stream it? Why can't I download it? My thoughts have trailed all over the place, and I guess ultimately what I'm trying to say is it feels like the premium tier specifically just isn't enough to justify the price. Streaming isn't very good, and there's just a lot of games missing in the classics collection that it doesn't justify the price. All right, so we've talked about what's good, we've talked about what needs improvement, and now I want to talk about what's missing. And I think that my issues with what's missing lays primarily with the premium tier more than the essentials tier and the extra tier. Like I said, I am an enthusiast about classic video games. I like the idea of knowing that the game industry still supports the games that are no longer backwards compatible. You want to imagine that we live in a world where developers see video games as more than something of monetary value. You want to sort of preserve that past, not only because it is an artistic necessity, but because of economic viability. With that being said, I wanted to sort of examine what I think is missing from the classic selection on the premium tier and what I would want on it to raise the value of it. So I think that there are classic exclusives that could be easily integrated on the service. So for example, Castlevania Symphony of the Night, that is a classic PS1 game. A lot of people will talk about how great Castlevania Symphony of the Night was. It is still a game that is often talked about despite not being the most readily available game in the Castlevania series. It is a significant one. It is the one that pushed the series forward. I think a good number of people would probably upgrade for at least a month just to play it. And I've complained about this in multiple episodes, but the Metal Gear Solid games are still missing everything before V on the PlayStation. So Revengeance isn't on here, and that was on PS Now, which has been consolidated to the PlayStation 3 Classic section for the most part. This is a huge oversight. These games are crucial to the identity and history of the PlayStation as a console and as a brand. I know that Konami let the license for archive footage expire for 2 and 3, and I speculated in the first episode that I did for the show that the new PlayStation Plus rebrand would be a great opportunity for them to reintegrate these games into digital storefronts. And it is so disappointing that that wasn't the case. Speaking of Konami, this would be the perfect time to port the Silent Hill games over onto the PlayStation 5. Uh, I don't anticipate it happening because once again, Konami is very bad at this, but this seems like the perfect layup for it. But again, this is Konami. I've never played the Silent Hill games. I think that they'd be a nice addition. I know it's not going to happen because Konami doesn't want us to have nice things. I know that the HD ports that were on the PlayStation 3 were famously bad, so these games have not been reasonably accessible in quite some time. It just feels awful that critically acclaimed games that felt like a major fixture in the games industry 20 years ago just may as well not exist because of Konami's refusal to support older games. You'd think that that had been addressed or Sony would have helped deal with it to have more games available on the service to get more people interested in it. It just feels so upsetting that 
a game series that was hugely popular just barely exists anymore. Wipe this meme from the face of the earth. But that's enough about how Konami is one of the worst publishers in the industry. Uh, just some other games that I think that would be good additions to the Classics Collection. The Sly Cooper series seems like a perfect layup. Like I said, I think it's kind of weird that Sly Cooper isn't represented on here and Infamous and Ghost of Tsushima is. So put those on there. And I think they should put the remainder of the Ratchet and Clank games on here. Why not? Jack and Daxter, Ratchet and Clank, and Sly Cooper all felt like mainstays in a certain era of platformer during the PlayStation 2 era. And it just feels weird that you wouldn't put those together in a classics collection. So put that on there, guys, please. It would be great. And this one is a crapshoot because Square Enix also doesn't like nice things, but put Final Fantasy Tactics on the Classics Collection. It hasn't been the most well-preserved game, despite references to it still popping up in games like Final Fantasy XIV, but you should put Final Fantasy Tactics on there. I think the last re-release for it was in the PlayStation Portable era. Final Fantasy Tactics is a fan-favorite spinoff in the Final Fantasy series. There are people who like it more than the numbered entries even, and it just does not have the kind of support that the number entries have in terms of preservation. It was a PlayStation exclusive back in the day. Bring it over here now. And this final one is more for nostalgic reasons than me thinking it's going to necessarily hold up. But I like the Mega Man Legends games that were on the PlayStation 1. Put those on there. I remember them being in the PlayStation 3 store. Why not put them there? I understand realistically that a lot of games will be added down the line, but this initial offering is hugely disappointing to me. There are already issues with the navigation and organization, and I understand that they want to stretch out the value of this thing as long as possible by slowly releasing their exclusives, but that's going to be frustrating for the consumer long term. I, I think of the Nintendo Switch Online service. People are super upset at how slowly it's releasing its classics to the point that a lot of its offerings for NES and SNES games still haven't even caught up to what was on the Wii. I understand not wanting to release everything at once, but the longer you take to release more games in this tier, the longer people are going to be dissatisfied. Gamers are historically not great at playing the waiting game. I think it would be best if they added more and more games to their classics collection because that's really all the premium has going for it. If you want people to pay that extra $20 or extra several dollars a month, you gotta have more. Alright, I think I've spent way too much time talking about classic games and whining about the PlayStation Premium tier, so let's just go to the verdict. You thought it was funny! I thought it was interesting! So what's the verdict overall? Is it worth it? I mean, kind of. It depends. Let me let me let me give my verdict first as a service separate from Game Pass and Switch Online. I'll compare it first as a service completely divorced from everything else, just a service in its own right. And then I'll also compare it to Game Pass and Switch Online and see what it can learn from it and whether it's superior to those services or not. So firstly, I gotta say, having over 80 plus downloadable classic games is nothing to dismiss. I complained about it, but that is 80 plus games that you can download for just $20. Mind you, most of these games were already purchasable before the rebrand, but now there's an option to download them through the subscription service. Ultimately, though, I think the classics just leave a lot to be desired. It's just underwhelming because there's so many classics that could be on the service that just aren't there yet, and there's no clear vision 
for how Sony intends to roll this thing out. So a big thing that Sony needs to do is just make their vision for this service more clear. What's the plan to add more classic games? What's the timeline? What specific games can we anticipate? When that's made more clear and more games are added, I'd be more willing to recommend the premium tier, but I don't think I can. But that's only one tier. That's the premium tier, the $120 tier. The real value in the PlayStation Plus service is going to be in those modern games that are mainly included on the extra tier. For me, I can personally justify the price tag of $120 because I can play major releases I didn't own before. I'm excited to play the remake of Demon's Souls now that I finished Elden Ring. I'm stoked for this Death Stranding director's cut. I just downloaded it on the PlayStation 5. I'm stoked to play Returnal because I love that kind of game. Those three games alone justified me paying an extra $60 in my mind. And those three games I listed, they're all exclusives, so they clearly represent the strength of owning a PlayStation. Like, it's building the brand. I just wish that the, the premium tier had that, because the thing is, those three games I just listed, they're all included on the extra tier. You could only have to pay $100 a year for those, and instead of the $120 I ultimately ended up paying. If more enticing classics aren't added to the premium tier, and if the cloud streaming doesn't improve for the PlayStation 3 games, I'm going to consider dropping to the extra tier because I wouldn't see the money value in staying. It wouldn't take me very long to beat the classic games that I'm interested in, and I think Sony needs to take that in consideration as they are rolling out more and more classics. I guess I'd summarize my thoughts on the service as such. The PlayStation Plus is a service that is promising in theory, but in practice, it's all extremely underwhelming. There's a diverse array of incredible games, but the organization of them leaves a lot to be desired. The idea of having an easily accessible library of classic games is exciting, but so far, the execution of it is deeply underwhelming. For the best money value, stick to the extra tier. There's a lot of great games on that. The premium tier, though, it has a lot of work that needs to be done, a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done. So that's what I think. I'm a big classic games guy. I'm into games preservation, but on that front, this is pretty disappointing. I can't recommend premium. I think that Sony needs to be held accountable for it personally. Wait on it. I'll be the first to say they're doing better when they do better, but in practice at this exact moment, it's not enough and it needs a lot of work. And I'm, I'm sorry to say that as a person whose whole thing is game preservation. So that's a PlayStation Plus service on its own. How does the PlayStation Plus compare to Nintendo Switch Online and Game Pass? I'll tell you right after the break. Have you ever listened to my voice and thought, I'd give that guy at least a dollar? Great news, now you can, at patreon.com slash keeperscorner. Joining my Patreon and contributing at least $1 a month gives you early access to new episodes of Select and Start before they're released on the main feed. You also get extended episodes, which means you get longer episodes than the ones I release on the main feed. Joining my Patreon also gets you behind-the-scenes updates on my other projects as I develop them. My show is hosted, edited, and promoted entirely by myself, but it's your support that keeps it going. And if you like the show but don't have the means to support it financially through Patreon, at least consider leaving a positive review on your listening application and sharing the links on your social media. Either way, your support is going to directly help the show. Thanks for listening. I hope this ad wasn't too intrusive for you. Uh, let's get back to the show. Alright, so first let's compare PlayStation Plus with Nintendo Switch Online. The Nintendo Switch Online service launched in September of 2018. Prior to that, multiplayer was free on the Switch. 
following the launch of Switch Online, the use of online multiplayer in games required a paid subscription to the service. Like the PlayStation, there are some free-to-play games that allow online multiplayer. Let's talk about price. Uh, Switch Online membership is $20 a year, and their family plan, which can add up to 8 people, $35 a year. With that, you get basic features, online multiplayer, cloud saves for most games, uh, voice chat but only through the Switch mobile app, and access to their legacy game service which includes stuff from the NES and SNES era. Occasionally you also get offers and deals that are exclusive to Switch Online members such as free downloadable games like Tetris 99 and Pac-Man 99, or the ability to order special wireless controllers to use for those aforementioned NES and SNES apps. There's also the Switch Online Plus Expansion Pack membership, which is $50 a year or $80 a year for the family plan. Upgrading gives you additional legacy games to play from the Nintendo 64 and Sega Genesis, and it also gives you free DLC for games like Mario Kart 8 and Animal Crossing New Horizons that you would otherwise have to pay for. I won't go too in-depth about my feelings on the Switch Online overall because I've alluded to them in previous episodes, but $20 for an individual plan isn't that bad, and if you're splitting a family plan with 8 people total, you're paying less than $5 a year for the service. Of course, the lack of cloud saves for Pokemon games, the fact that online used to be free, there's no native voice chat, low quality online experience overall, even for games like Smash and Mario Kart which depend on having a decent online service. These are all major problems, and they're unacceptable for a company of this size. Ultimately, they're problems that haven't made me consider ending my membership, so I guess I'm enabling Nintendo's shittiness in that regard. That being said, to this day, I still refuse to join that higher online tier. Nobody I personally know uses the online family plan for that higher tier, so paying an extra $30 just for access to Nintendo 64 games and Genesis games, it's not that enticing. My main issue is the quality of emulation on the Nintendo 64 games in particular. When this expansion pack initially launched, there was famously a wealth of bugs and glitches brought about by the emulation of those Nintendo 64 games. Allegedly, many of these problems have been addressed in the months since, and the quality of the emulation has improved as more games have been added to the service, but even now I'm still hesitant about that price jump. Maybe if more games are added over time and more DLC is available, I might bite the bullet, but $30 a year for DLC I would technically only rent as long as I remain a member? That's still not enough. More on this point later. Furthermore, the expansion pack still doesn't address my most glaring issue with the Switch Online, which is the actual online service. Even having a great internet connection doesn't mitigate the pains of playing games online. It's not always nightmarish, but the lack of refinement on Nintendo's part has definitely made me fall off of games like Smash sooner than I otherwise would have. As a reminder, the lowest tier on the PlayStation Plus is $60, and its highest is $120, so Nintendo wins on the question of price, but in terms of quality of service, I'm gonna have to give it to the PlayStation over the Switch. In terms of game preservation and making their classics library available, I have to kinda give the edge to Nintendo, but one major advantage of the PlayStation is that you can download and pay for their emulated games that aren't streaming only, which I firmly believe that Nintendo should have as an option. I think if you just want to download A Link to the Past without subscribing to a service, you should be allowed to do so. Overall though, I think that they have a decent number of NES, SNES, and N64 games that are easily viewable within their respective apps and properly organized. It gives them an edge on the classic selection and the organization that the PlayStation does not have yet. But that's it. 
even then, it's not like Nintendo has an A-plus in that category either. There's severe, severe gaps in what is available in the SNES services and the Nintendo 64 services. They have a slight edge on the PlayStation Plus because they have plenty of NES, SNES, and Nintendo 64 games to choose from that are easily viewable and organized properly. That's the one edge that they have, but even then, it's not like Nintendo has an A-plus in that category. In fact, I think Nintendo's offering should serve as a warning to Sony. Nintendo fans are frustrated at how infrequently new classics are added to the service as well as the fact that they have to pay more money for the Nintendo 64 and Genesis sections. I don't want either company to fail in this category, but for Nintendo, this problem feels endemic, whereas with Sony, they still have time to course correct. I see the promise in Sony. I'm just disappointed in Nintendo. I love Nintendo games, and I've always considered myself a Nintendo kid first and foremost, but their online service is underwhelming overall. Standard features that Xbox and Sony don't struggle with continue to elude them. So even though that they might have an edge in some classic games, Sony still wins overall. It's a better service. But that's just a Nintendo Switch Online. We still have to talk about Game Pass. So here's the main event. Game Pass versus PlayStation Plus. Nintendo is a company that deals mainly in gaming, but Sony and Microsoft, they're more than just gaming companies. They're major global corporations with access to immense power and resources. But let's stick strictly to gaming here. In the context of gaming, Xbox has always seemed like the third place guy. And Game Pass kind of challenges the established norm for better or worse, and these recent acquisitions have given them the ability to leverage exclusives in a way that they haven't been able to before. Most notably in Game Pass's corner is that you don't even need an Xbox to benefit from it, you can just have a PC. The popularity of gaming as a hobby and passion has grown exponentially in recent years. Streaming and the pandemic are two mainstream factors people have pointed to, but I think the long-term economic viability of gaming as a medium has made itself clear in recent decades. And that makes big businesses, and by extension, society at large, take gaming seriously. There are gaming-specific conventions, professional esports, media developed about gaming or adapted from video game properties. Even niche communities within gaming like speedrunners can raise millions of dollars for charity. The internet has played a pivotal role in that as well. Even beyond streaming, social media and Reddit have replaced our need for multiple forums and websites to talk about specific interests. Everything has merged, and that means everything is more visible, which includes gaming. This feels like a long-winded way of getting to this point, but I think with the internet becoming more and more of a necessity, as well as the convergence of the internet into a handful of websites and applications, it's made PC gaming in particular much larger and more viable than it's ever been. PC gaming just looks more appealing now. If you're a streamer, it makes streaming easier. If you don't want to have a bunch of tech in your home, you can just have one PC instead of multiple consoles in your house. It's much more versatile than other consoles and what it can do, and at the end of the day, computers are becoming a necessity in society. The internet is becoming essential for communication, education, and commerce. Consolidating as much entertainment as possible into that one space has been a priority of most big businesses in recent years to the point that our consumption habits have radically changed in an incredibly short period of time. Gaming goes with that too, and Game Pass was a smart business reaction to that. Microsoft being in the PC and video game console market means that they have two avenues to reach consumers for their video games. If the value of Game Pass isn't immediately apparent, it will be in the next year or two as more and more games become timed exclusives or outright exclusives, even if the price inevitably raises to keep up with the scope of its long-term ambitions. 
All these new blockbuster games available in a model where you don't have to pay hundreds of dollars out of pocket in a short window of time is extremely attractive. As stated earlier, I have a Game Pass subscription and I've never owned an Xbox. An Xbox has never been in my home. I've never even entertained the idea of getting one. I, I still don't want one. But PC Game Pass offers a lot of readily available games to play on a device that I use literally every day for work. This podcast, the videos that I make, my long-term ambitions, my 9-to-5 job, they're all here on one device. And so are a lot of my video games. And this angle is probably why Sony has ported some exclusives on the PlayStation onto PC-specific digital storefronts like Steam. They want a piece of that pie. But Microsoft has lived in it, and the future indicates that they may thrive as they are positioned to dominate more of the market. So looking at PlayStation Plus and looking at Game Pass, who am I rooting for in all this? Sony? No. Microsoft? No. Nintendo? No. No, no, I'm rooting for the end of capitalism. But which online service model do I ultimately find superior? Game Pass. It's Game Pass. And the PC aspect is a big determining factor in that. I'm not suggesting Sony needs to start porting every exclusive that they have over to PC. I'm just pointing out that as a consumer, not even needing an Xbox to enjoy most of the benefits of your service creates a lot of value. New PS5s and new Xboxes are still hard to come by as of the time I'm recording this. But even if you don't have a new generation of consoles, you can still use Game Pass and play a decent chunk of their games. Even if you don't have the most up-to-date hardware on your PC, the indie game variety alone is pretty incredible. Organization is in Game Pass's favor too. I have no issue navigating the Xbox app on my desktop, but I struggle to find my way about the PS Plus section on my PlayStation 5. Game Pass organizes everything alphabetically by default. PlayStation Plus doesn't, and I'm still never clear on the best place to look for games I might want to try. I don't want to lose precious free time navigating my way through clutter. Game Pass isn't perfect though. Let me be clear on that. There's no guarantee a specific game will be on there for longer than a year, so I'm never fully confident I'll get to a game in time. And if you look at their offerings side by side, you can see that at launch, PlayStation Plus technically offers more games than Game Pass overall. Game Pass currently has a little over 400 games total, whereas the highest PS Plus tier, which is again is premium, offers 800. But when you factor in that over 300 of those premium games can only be streamed, it feels like it's an artificially inflated number. And I'm not sold on cloud gaming as an ideal way of playing games. Sony recommends an internet speed of at least 5 megabits per second to stream games, 15 if you want to stream in HD, but I found it frustrating even with 50 megabits per second. Larger games like Red Dead Redemption barely seem to work, which feels insulting given that if you play the 360 version of Red Dead Redemption with enhanced backwards compatibility, it plays at a stable 30 FPS in 4K. Even non-HD games like Lego Star Wars The Complete Saga crashed on me. Go over and kick the table. Shut the fuck up. Go over and kick the table. What's that do for the greater good? On the issue of price, Game Pass and PS Plus Premium are about even. After a single dollar for three months, the price raises to $10 a month for the standard Game Pass. PC Game Pass and Xbox Game Pass are sold separately. If you want both, you can buy Game Pass Ultimate, which is a single dollar for three months, followed by $15 a month moving forward. That's more expensive than Premium, but it lets you use Game Pass on your console, your PC, it gives you Xbox Gold, and it gives you all the perks for both Game Passes. But here's an edge that Game Pass has over PlayStation Plus that I haven't addressed yet. Game Pass has brand new games on there on day one of release. That is a huge selling point, and Sony has stated that they don't plan to have day one new releases on the PS Plus service. You can play a few hours of Crusader Kings 3 for free on PlayStation Plus Premium, 
but on Game Pass, for the same price a year, you can play it all on day one. Future games like Hollow Knight Silksong, a highly anticipated multi-platform release, will be free day one on Game Pass. You can pay for it on the Switch or on the PlayStation, but on Game Pass, it's free. And Game Pass does this for their exclusives as well. Halo Infinite's campaign was free on Game Pass. Starfield will be free on Game Pass. All those recent acquisitions that they made with Activision Blizzard and Bethesda, those companies are going to develop games that will be there day one on Game Pass. Xbox wants you to know this so you stay subscribed to the service long term. The value isn't just that there are a lot of good games on there now, but there are going to be a lot of good new releases for the foreseeable future. Sony doesn't plan to have Horizon Forbidden West for free on the service, and they've already clarified that God of War Ragnarok won't be on it, so PlayStation owners still need to pay money for new games or wait an undisclosed amount of time for them to finally appear on the service sometime later. But Game Pass has games that retail for like $60, $70, right there on the service available for free for just $10 a month. The PlayStation Plus is newer, and it had a template to go off of with the Game Pass, which has been established for years now but it still looks inferior when you compare it directly to Game Pass in terms of what it has to offer now and in the future. Ultimately, Game Pass does in fact remain the best deal in gaming. The PlayStation Plus needs a lot of work. That being said, I'm not comfortable blindly singing praises for the Game Pass service model. The service is often called the Netflix of games, and that comparison isn't necessarily a good thing. While there are conveniences for the consumer on a price level, there are legitimate concerns about the sustainability of this model. How can that be profitable for Frito-Lay? Furthermore, while Netflix streaming began as a convenience, it slowly revealed itself to be a new form of capitalistic rot. The consequence of movie streaming has resulted in worse movies with worse production values and worse pay for the employees that work on them. Spotify was convenience for consumers who wouldn't have to pay as much money as they used to for music, but the affordability of Spotify ends up hurting music artists, particularly smaller ones without the safety net of a large label or established following. It creates this vicious purgatory where smaller artists depend on streaming for visibility, but not for revenue. Former Vice President of Game Publishing at Microsoft, Ed Fries, made this comparison recently, expressing concerns that the Spotify model could come into play for Game Pass. Personally, I don't think that's entirely true, or at the very least, he's missing the forest for the trees. In multiple instances, games ended up selling more copies after appearing on Game Pass because the positive word of mouth spread to people who weren't on Game Pass. In the short term, Game Pass appears to be helping smaller developers while saving some gamers money. But we do have to think long term here, and under capitalism, every perceived solution to a problem is capitalizing on it, not solving it. You remember my complaint about BetterHelp earlier? Yeah, you thought that was a weird aside, but it turns out it has a point. My concerns are less about Game Pass specifically and more about the acquisitions Microsoft has done to support Game Pass. The absorption of so many studios under a single conglomerate is the bigger red flag to me than this subscription service. Especially when one of those acquisitions was Activision Blizzard, who was, at the time, the largest third-party video game publisher and whose abuses have been revealed to the world, but not necessarily corrected. Acquiring a company with shady business practices and abuse allegations so quickly demonstrates to me a lack of trustworthiness and integrity. They were taking advantage of a shitty situation for a power grab, and we need to interrogate things like that. And acquisitions in general, like the ones they did for Bethesda, Obsidian, and Double Fine, they're indicative of a greater long-term issue with the games industry than just Game Pass alone. Game Pass isn't the disease, it's just a symptom of it. 
Consolidation is the new name of the game. And with consolidation comes homogenization. And sure, maybe Microsoft can claim that they give their studios creative freedom now, but there's no guarantee of that long term. Look at Disney. The MCU, Star Wars, and even Pixar are falling into the homogenization hole. At first glance, Acquisitions just looks like a company trying to diversify its portfolio. In truth, they're seeking power and control and profit above all else. Look, I'm not trying to put a company down for fun. I'm just issuing a warning. I'm not going to tell you to cancel Game Pass or to stop buying video games or whatever. Things like the console wars and corporate tribalism are just marketing tricks to draw pointless ideological lines in the sand so you don't notice the more sinister aspects of this evil industry. Crunch, harassment, preying on gambling addiction, laying off the employees of the companies you just acquired, so on and so forth. The console wars and brand loyalty are just microcosms of the big capitalistic trick of making us fight each other instead of demanding better. I'm not asking you to change your preferences or your taste in games. I just want you to adopt a healthy sense of skepticism. Question these things. These are things I didn't necessarily mean to talk about when I first started reviewing the PlayStation Plus rebrand, but I wanted to get at the root of why I was so underwhelmed and disappointed by it. I'm sorry if this is too negative, but I'm worried about the future of gaming. I don't necessarily think we're rapidly approaching a great crash like we were in 1983, but I am worried that it is shifting in a direction where players and game developers lose power in favor of big corporations. I mean, think about Game Pass and Switch Online and the PlayStation Plus model for a second. You're paying a subscription fee to rent games, not own them. That's what it is, it's renting. The second you lapse on a payment, you do not own those games anymore. Physical media is being phased out in favor of digital media. And now ownership is being phased out in favor of a renting model. And rentals are certainly the more affordable option for many, but how will this shake out long term? If we don't own what we have, what can the owners of it get away with doing to us? Think about the housing crisis. So yeah, sorry if I'm a little negative, but if companies are going to control our methods of consumption, the least they could do is figure out a way to fucking emulate their own fucking consoles. Like, what is the deal with the PlayStation 3, man? You made it. Why can't you figure out how to emulate it? Anyway, anyway, this is why I usually have a guest on a show, because when I'm alone, I go on tangents and then it gets dark. When I made this podcast, I wanted to celebrate the good aspects of gaming, but I can't ignore the fact that good things are being stifled by powers bigger than you or me. Sometimes the things that we love about gaming are being stifled by the people that made those good things. It shouldn't be this hard to play classic Nintendo games, and it shouldn't be hard to play classic PlayStation games. The reason Microsoft has been gaining so much ground in these console wars is because they have a decent sense of what consumers want besides new games. They've been supporting backwards compatibility for games going back to the Xbox era for years. It's honestly embarrassing that they haven't been in the games industry nearly as long as Nintendo and Sony, but seem more in touch with that kind of thing. I hate giving Microsoft credit for their game preservation work after complaining about them so much, but it's worth bringing up because one, game preservation is part of the reason I'm doing this show in the first place, and two, you secure your legacy by looking to the past and the future. If the artistic merits of game preservation don't appeal to you, maybe the financial incentive might. You keep the industry and your business alive by giving as many options to your consumer as possible. I wish a video game companies spent as much time preserving their past as they did trying to control our future. Anyway, let's go back to celebrating games. I have some recommendations for you.
Hey there, it's your boy Dre to tell you about Fine Time, a video game podcast I do with my friends. We talk about new PS5 games, old TurboGrafx-16 games, upcoming games, all that stuff. We're always doing silly stuff with each other on the air, like playing Pokemon Real or Fake. We get unpopular gaming opinions off our chest, and we have a really good time doing it because we're good-natured, we love to laugh, and we'd love for you to join us for a fine time. So go ahead and click the link in the description to check us out. Thank you. In the typical select and start format, my guests and I will each give recommendations to our listeners at the end of the episode. Obviously, though, we didn't talk about a specific game today. We were talking about the PlayStation Plus model. As much as I've complained about PlayStation Plus, there are a lot of games worth playing on it. So I'll dedicate this section of the show to shouting out some of my favorite games included on the collection, give you some recommendations. There's hundreds of games to sift through and unintuitive navigation to find it all. So this will be a great way to help you get over potential choice paralysis. And I'm going to try not to give the obvious recommendations like major AAA games or blockbuster games, since I think those will be the games that get the most visibility anyway. You don't need me to recommend Horizon Zero Dawn or The Last of Us. I like those games, but they're huge. They don't need a shout out. I'm not going to talk about every game I like on the surface or it'd take hours. But if you don't hear your favorite game listed on here, or if you felt like I missed something, That doesn't mean I dislike it or forgot to put it there. I just wanted to give a spotlight to these particular games because they mean something to me and I think that more people should play them. So these are some games that I recommend to you that you can play on the PlayStation Plus. Number one's Bloodborne. Uh, Elden Ring is a bit of a phenomenon right now, so this feels like an obvious pick. Uh, This was FromSoft's PS4 exclusive game and in my estimation, my second favorite FromSoft experience after Elden Ring. Uh, I think the way it rewards more aggressive tactics compared to other FromSoft games makes it the most approachable game after Elden Ring. If you haven't played Elden Ring yet and you want to dip your toes into the Souls-style type of game, maybe check this one out first. If you're a totally new player to this type of game, don't let yourself be overwhelmed. If you find yourself stuck, it's totally okay to use a player guide. I think this game's aesthetics are just uniquely great. I think it nails so much of the vibe and it's just a really rewarding game to play. Uh, This is my first FromSoft game I ever played, so it's always going to hold a special place in my heart, and that's why I recommended it first. Uh, After that, I'd like to recommend uh, number two, Dead Cells. Dead Cells is a challenging but approachable blend of the Metroidvania style of games and roguelikes. If you're not savvy with video game terminology, think of this as a mix of Hollow Knight and Hades. I think the developers themselves claim they drew inspiration from Souls-type games, like Dark Souls specifically, and Binding of Isaac. Dead Cells is a side-scrolling game where you start from basically zero every time you die, but the world is procedurally generated, so the map layout is different every run. Uh, The art style is really unique, uh, the music is awesome, and the game continues to be updated to this day with new content. When it first came out on the Switch, I became deeply, deeply addicted to it, and it consumed my life and it was one of the games that got me through a really, really tough work situation uh, years ago, and I'll always appreciate it for that. I love this kind of game so much, and it's why Hades is one of my favorite games. And this one isn't a PlayStation exclusive either, so if you're listening to this show and don't have a PlayStation at all, check this out. You don't need a PlayStation to play it. It's on Switch, it's on Xbox, it's on basically everything. PC, Mac, iOS, Android. And it's not a technically demanding game, so you don't need the best hardware to play it. If you can play Dead Cells, you should play it. Also, the developers of the game uh, Motion Twin are a worker cooperative, which in the extremely worker hostile industry that is video games, fucking rules. 
these employees own and run the business together democratically, and that's awesome. Check out their dope-ass game. Number three is Gravity Rush. Play the Gravity Rush games, y'all. They are super good. Obviously, start from one. The way these games use gravity for propulsive movement is so fun and deeply funny. There's two Gravity Rush games overall, and they weren't huge sellers, but they have a really dedicated following because there are so few games like them. The gameplay alone makes the games worth it, but the worlds and the characters and the way everything looks, it's all so charming. The story is you, you fight fascism with gravity, uh, you're a cat lady that lives in the sewers. Uh, the first game's pretty short too, so it's not a huge time sink. I beat this game over a weekend. I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, play Gravity Rush. Uh, number four. Outer Wilds uh, was one of those games that I really hated myself for not getting into sooner. There are a lot of great Groundhog Day type games, and this is at the top, if not near the very top. Take it from someone whose all-time favorite game is The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, which is basically the Groundhog Day game. Outer Wilds is, is the real deal. Without giving too much away, you're an astronaut from an alien world in an unknown galaxy, trying to uncover a mystery while stuck in a time loop that resets every 22 minutes. There's no weapons, you're just solving time-based puzzles and avoiding dangerous environmental situations while learning ancient history and uncovering a mystery. The learning curve is a little steep, and you may feel overwhelmed by the lack of explicit direction and the scale of the game, but trust me, you can take your time with this. Don't try to brute force this experience, and don't worry about doing things perfectly. Just let the experience hit you, take your time with it, try to avoid guides as much as possible. Just let it all wash over you. Learning is part of the experience. Failure is part of the experience. The game is trying to encourage you to discover and try new things organically, and you aren't completely on your own. There's a journal on your ship that keeps track of your findings after each loop, so if you ever get stuck, you can consult that for guidance and look for hints that way. Outer Wilds is one of the best games ever, and trust me on this, it's a profoundly affecting experience. A lot of people say that they wish they could play this game for the first time all over again, and you can count me as one of those people. 5. Prey Prey is another great outer space game and an awesome immersive sim in the vein of those early Deus Ex games. Uh, in a way, it feels a lot more of a spiritual successor to the System Shock games than the Bioshock series does. It's a game that took me by surprise when I played it on the Lark, and before this game, most immersive sims overwhelmed me, but this one felt like a good on-ramp to a genre that gives the players a lot of agency in how to approach a situation and how to develop their character's abilities in the long term. Check out Prey. Shadow of the Colossus is also on here. Uh, that's my sixth recommendation. Full disclosure, my frame of reference for Shadow of the Colossus is the HD re-release on the PlayStation 3 and not the Bluepoint remake that's available to download on this service. I haven't played the remake yet, but from what I hear, it's a faithful one. Uh, the original game was released in 2005, and it became highly influential to video games in the years since. Basically, all the major acclaimed fantasy games that have been released since have taken something from this game. Breath of the Wild, Elden Ring, the God of War games. If you're not familiar with this game at all, imagine a game where the only enemies you encounter are the boss battles, all of which are massive beasts that require platforming and puzzle solving to defeat them. And in addition to fighting it, you have to scale it and stab its weak spots. You have to have environmental awareness and use your surroundings. It's kind of an unforgettable experience. Emotional, rewarding, and intimate. It says so much despite saying so little. It makes you feel so much, despite how minimal it all is. You'll see what I mean when I play it. It is 
it's worth it if you haven't played it, trust me on this. My seventh and uh, final recommendation for today is the game called Control. Uh, I really love the Max Payne series and Remedy and my experience has been a developer that takes big swings in a mid-budget space. Control isn't perfect, uh, but there isn't a game quite like it and its strengths outweigh its shortcomings. The Max Payne games were a noir thriller and the Alan Wake games they also developed evoked the works of Stephen King. Control is evocative of the X-Files and the SCP Foundation. It's set entirely in this labyrinthian, brutalist building where you use your psychic powers and weird weapons to take on enemies controlled by supernatural entities. It makes effective use of the inherent creepiness of the brutalist architecture in the 60s Cold War era. So not unlike recent shows like uh, Loki, uh, for example, or to use a video game comparison, the, the middle stretch of Portal 2. If that kind of vibe is your scene, uh, check out this game. Gameplay-wise, it's a bit like a Metroidvania where you incrementally gain abilities that open up the environments for you, but in a more 3D space. So think more like Batman Arkham Asylum or Prey, which I just mentioned, more than, say, Super Metroid or Hollow Knight. I just realized I gave two anti-gravity lady recommendations today. Uh, check out the Gravity Rush games first, for sure, but also play Control too. So those are a few of my recommendations. Again, there's plenty of great games on this service, but those are just a few of the ones I do recommend. So if you have a recommendation that I didn't list, just give the show a shout at SelectPodStart on Twitter or DM the show, and I may read your recommendation on a future episode. Thank you so much for listening to this solo episode of Select and Start. Once again, I'm Kiefer, and I'm the host, writer, editor, and promoter for the show. If you enjoyed this episode, you can follow the show over on Twitter at SelectPodStart. This was a bit of a break from the usual format, and I'd love to know how you felt listening to this. I don't see myself doing another solo project like this for a while since it's a lot of work writing for myself on top of making the videos and working a full-time job, but your feedback matters to me either way. If you have thoughts about anything I've covered or any other games we've discussed on the show in previous episodes, you can send the show a DM or leave a comment and I'll gladly read it on the show. You can also follow me on my main Twitter page at Danny Vegito and find links to the rest of my projects in the description of this episode. If you're interested in supporting me directly, you can leave a like or a five-star review wherever you're listening to the show. You can also help the show reach a wider audience by sharing it with your friends or on social media. And as a reminder, you can follow the show's brand new Patreon, also in the description of the show. For just $1 or more a month, you can get access to the show before it's released on the main feed. Patreon subscribers also get longer episodes featuring segments or conversations that had to be cut for time consideration. This podcast is independently run by a single individual, so the fastest way for this show to grow is with your help. Your contributions and support directly improves the show, so thank you. The art for the show is made by my best friend, Avery Ott. You can follow him on social media with the handle at AveryRobinOtte. That's A-V-R-Y Robin O-T-T. You can check out the links in the description for his work, as well as Manu's and Dre's. All right, I think that's it. Power to the players. How can that be profitable for Frito-Lay?